Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today we're talking about the Revolt of the Palace Girls of 1542. On the night of November 24th, 1542, the 21st year of the reign of Emperor Jia Jing of the Ming Dynasty, a group of palace girls inside the Forbidden City gathered in a quiet corner of the palace and whispered among themselves, their voices urgent and frightened. The upshot of their conversation, according to their own testimonies after the fact, was to arrive at a decision to make an attempt on the emperor's life. Better to kill him, or to get killed in the process, they said, than to do nothing and eventually get killed anyway. Remarkably, given that the names of women were often omitted from Chinese imperial annals, given that palace girls weren't exactly high-status individuals, the full names of these women have come down to us. The imperial annals dutifully recorded the names of many of the group of 16 palace girls involved because of what they were about to do. Their names were Yang Jingli, Su Chuan Yao, Yang Yuxiang, Xing Cui Lian, Yao Shu Cui, Yang Cui Ying, Guan Mei Xiu, Liu Miao Lian, Chen Zhihua, Wang Xiulan, Zhang Jinglian, Chen Furong, Xu Qiuhua, Deng Jingxiang, Zhang Chunjing, Huang Yulian. If you speak Mandarin, you may already have caught on to the general tone of these names. They were stereotypical servant girl names. A surname followed by a nice adjective, followed by the name of a kind of flower or another. Which also means that these were quite possibly not names originally given to them by their parents, but by their masters, the imperial household itself. Having decided to go for it, one of the girls... Yang Yuxiang took a length of rope from a piece of decoration inside the palace and hid it away. They made their move three days later, on November 27th, 1542. It was not long after five in the morning, when the winter sky over Beijing was still dark and the palace still slept. Most importantly, their target still slept in his great big bedroom. I say his bedroom, but this was in fact the bedroom in the wing of the palace given to one of his favorite consorts, consort Cao, with whom the emperor was quite smitten due to her beauty. The palace girls made their way to this bedroom. Consort Cao was not present at this time. The emperor slept alone. At a sign, they jumped on him as one. He immediately awoke from whatever sweet dreams of immortality he was having and struggled against them. But they would not let him up. One girl held down his left hand, another held down his right hand, another held down his left leg, another held down his right leg, another sat on his chest, another sat on his belly. Another placed a cloth over his face. 
Another locked both hands on his throat and tried to strangle him. Even as she did so, two of her confederates worked the rope that they had hidden away into a knot. They worked the knot over the emperor's head and around his neck. Then they tightened it hard. He lost consciousness. In a few moments, it seemed, he would be dead. The emperor in question was, of course, Emperor Jiaqing, the twelfth emperor of the Ming dynasty. Born in 1507, he was at this time 35 years old. He wasn't supposed to be emperor. His predecessor, the Zhengde emperor, died in 1521 at 31 without an heir. The minister of personnel, Yang Tinghe, at the time traced the imperial family tree according to the Ming rules of inheritance and arrived at the conclusion that the 14-year-old cousin, Zhu Houzong, was next in line for the throne. So he became Emperor Jiaqing. But putting a collateral relative on the throne gave rise to its own problem. Emperor Jiaqing now wanted to retroactively make his father a posthumous emperor. From the perspective of filial love, this was understandable. And from a modern perspective, you may wonder what the big deal was, since only people already dead would be actually affected, which is to say no one would actually be affected. But according to Ming custom, this was not done. Rather, the senior mandarins regarded Emperor Jiaqing as having been retroactively adopted by his predecessor Zheng De's father so that he could no longer treat his own birth father as his father. It might all seem like a storm in a teacup to us, but to pre-modern Chinese, correct ritual was everything. So Emperor Jiaqing fell into early conflict with his mandarins. When he issued the order to deem his own father a posthumous emperor, over 200 mandarins knelt down in the Forbidden City to beg him to change his mind. Jiaqing didn't change his mind. Instead, he ordered the palace guards to drag these senior officials into the dungeons and have them tortured. Eventually, the mandarins relented, but not before 16 of their number were tortured to death. This early episode perhaps set the tone for the rest of Emperor Jiaqing's reign. He was a man of, shall we say, strong beliefs, and he wasn't afraid to spill blood to implement those beliefs. In some ways, these traits led to positive outcomes for Ming China. During the early years of his reign, Emperor Jiaqing pushed through political reforms that were widely considered a positive development. The conflict over his father's posthumous status already established Jiaqing's supremacy over the mandarins. Now he acted also to rein in the eunuchs, who, during the Ming dynasty, often held shocking sway over politics. He was concerned about 
the historical precedence of relatives by marriage of the emperor wielding disproportionate power, so he took pains to ensure this wouldn't happen either under his watch. He forestalled a trend toward the consolidation of land ownership in the hands of the wealthy few, which helped to improve the lives of common peasants. Later, in 1575, the famous minister Zhang Zhizheng would recall how everything seemed to be looking up for the Ming during these years, when Zhang Zhizheng himself was a child. But Jia Jing's my way or the highway attitude necessarily led to problems as well. Numerous uprisings and rebellions occurred during his reign. Late in his reign, the famous Mandarin Hai Rei courageously enumerated all the emperor's mistakes and flaws in a memorial to the throne, for which Emperor Jia Jing had him imprisoned. Most problematic was Emperor Jia Jing's devout belief in a certain version of Taoism. He ordered the construction of Taoist altars inside the Forbidden City. Then he brought in Taoist priests to perform all manners of rituals and spells, and to create alchemical concoctions for the emperor's benefit. Like the first emperor, he sought the secret formula to immortality. The difference was that, while the first emperor, Qin Shi Huang, sought it by sending explorers out into the Pacific, Emperor Jia Jing sought it in esoteric Taoist practices. He believed in the notion that the menstrual blood of virgin girls could be used to create immortality pills. For this reason, in selecting his palace girls, he ordered that they first ascertain their virginity. A couple of years ago, I came across a Twitter thread by a certain editor at a certain top U.S. magazine who has spent time working in China and who spoke Mandarin. Said editor was discussing this episode in Chinese history, the attempted murder of Emperor Jia Jing by his palace girls. The editor claimed that the palace girls tried to kill Jia Jing because the emperor was sexually abusing them. But obviously, the opposite had to be true. Emperor Jia Jing believed in the magical power of the menstrual blood of virgin girls. So he needed these palace girls to remain virgins. Any sexual contact with them would have defeated his own purpose. I pointed this out to said editor. He declined to correct the obviously false history he was presenting. Which is not to say that Emperor Jia Jing was not abusive to the palace girls. He was. Not only did he need the girls to remain virgins, but he also restricted their diet for the sake of ensuring the purity of their bodies, to the point of sometimes allowing them only water or tea. And even apart from all this esoteric Taoist stuff, Emperor Jia Jing was already notorious for having his servants beaten or even killed if they did anything less 
then perfectly to his liking. Even before that fateful morning, late in 1542, Jia Jing already had over 200 of his palace girls beaten to death for failing to serve him precisely how he liked. So the palace girls had quite enough motive to want the emperor dead. According to one account, leading up to the attempt on Jia Jing's life, one courtier had given him a multicolored tortoise as a gift. Claiming that the tortoise was some kind of divine creature, Emperor Jiajing gave the tortoise to the palace girls to care for. But perhaps because the tortoise was never divine, but had been artificially dyed to show its many colors, so was already injured by the dyeing process, the tortoise died. Fear of being punished, perhaps killed. Over the tortoise's death, might have led the palace girls finally deciding to risk it all. There is yet another theory that perhaps the episode was connected to the fight Emperor Jiajing had had with his mandarins years earlier, due to the question of his father's posthumous status as emperor. But I think we can reasonably safely discount this theory. The fight with the mandarins was eighteen years in the past, and the theory would discount the agency of the palace girls, treating them as pawns of the mandarins. In any event, so it was that at that pre-dawn hour in November, fifteen forty-two, the group of palace girls straddled Emperor Jiajing and tied a noose around his neck. But to their surprise and terror, no matter how hard they pulled on the noose, the emperor refused to expire. He lost consciousness, but his breathing and heartbeat continued. Why? How? In their terror, the poor girls began to wonder whether the mythology they'd been taught—that the emperor was truly the son of heaven. A dragon, a living god, might actually be true. Maybe the rightful son of heaven could not be killed. Was it possible? What they didn't realize until afterward was that, in their panic, they had tied the wrong knot. With this knot, no matter how hard they pulled, the noose would never fully tighten around the emperor's throat. As the seconds ticked away, and the emperor refused to die, one of the girls lost her nerve. She ran out and grabbed another one of the emperor's consorts and bade her to come. Another palace girl, seeing the consort coming, punched her and knocked her out. Then another palace girl came along, one who was not part of the plot, but whose job it was at this hour to go around the palace. And light the oil lamps. Afraid of being discovered, the murderous palace girls went around putting out the lights that she had just lit. Observing this bizarre behavior, the girl in charge of lighting the lamps finally ran out to call for help. Emperor Jiajing's wife, Empress Fang, arrived with eunuchs at her side.
They arrested the palace girls. Then they hurriedly brought in the imperial physician to revive the unconscious Emperor Jiaqing. The physician, a doctor named Xu Shen, was mindful of the pressure on him, of the likelihood that he himself would be killed if he failed to revive Emperor Jiaqing. So he took what were considered extreme measures in Chinese medicine to bring the emperor back from the gates of hell. He succeeded. But a few months later, Dr. Xu Shen himself fell ill and died, apparently due to the extraordinary stress he had been under during this episode. As Emperor Jiaqing regained consciousness, but was still unable to speak, Empress Feng took charge and meted out sentences in his stead. Not only would all these palace girls be punished, she declared, but so would Consort Wang, who had allegedly given them the idea. And so would Consort Cao, whose wing of the palace the attempted murder took place, because, Empress Feng reasoned, she must have known about it, and yet concealed the plot. She sentenced all the palace girls who were involved, and the two consorts, to the same punishment, regardless of whether they were leaders or followers in the plot, regardless of their specific roles. The punishment was death by a thousand cuts, the penalty for treason. The execution took place in public in the marketplace. And afterward, the severed heads of the women were raised up in display. Additionally, ten or more of their family members were also executed, and twenty other family members were enslaved. Later, it was demonstrated that Consort Cao actually had no involvement whatsoever. She was not in her bedchamber at the time, and didn't know what was happening. Empress Feng might have been jealous of the attention she received from Emperor Jiaqing, and took the opportunity to have a rival killed. Thus ended one of the most remarkable and also bloody episodes in history of the Chinese imperial harems. But its ramifications would continue for years. Emperor Jiaqing recovered, but the episode so shook him that he moved out of the Forbidden City and refused to return until he literally lay dying many years later. And as he realized after the fact that Consort Cao had been innocent, he came to hate his own wife, Empress Feng, who had saved his life but killed his lover. Five years later, in 1547, a fire broke out in Empress Feng's wing of the Forbidden City. The annals tell us that Emperor Jiaqing ordered the eunuchs to stand down, ordered them not to put out the fire. Some scholars believe he had ordered the arson in the first place. So Empress Feng burnt to death, serving as a gruesome coda 
to the already gruesome tale of the revolt of the Palace Girls of 1542, or as we say in Chinese, Ren Ying Gong Bian. This has been MODG. Thank you for listening.